Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Philippians 3, and the last time we saw well, we covered our response to Christ's humility model. And, you know, humility is probably one of the more difficult things to attain or a characteristic to develop, but it's something that we're called to do. And today we're going to look at the title of today's message is Less Flesh, More Jesus. Very simple title, a um, lot involved in there. And just a, a little, we're going to take this in three parts, but just a little kind of commentary on that is that, you know, we go through this world, right? This is a, a difficult world. You look at the, at the news, look on social media, there's just constant struggles and trials and things that can make you upset and disappointing. We see things in our own lives. Um, it's, it's, this is the world that Adam, that God gave to Adam, he forfeited to Satan when he sinned in the garden, and that Jesus is eventually going to come back and, and redeem and make good again. But it's almost as if God is letting human history play itself out. And for us to really see that being ruled by other sinners is just not the way to go. Uh, towards the end, right? We're going we're gonna to just be crying out for the Lord as Christians. We're crying out for the Lord. You know, we want equality. We want justice. We want these things to be on this planet. But in the first century, Jesus Christ came to to redeem us in a spiritual sense, and this later on is the physical, the full redemption is going to come to play uh, in a terrestrial or physical sense. So first is the spiritual, that comes first, and then the physical later. But just to say this as well, I deal with, you know, Christians on a regular basis that come, church people, um, just not just here, wherever, and they're looking for fulfillment. I'm going to tell you something. A lot of people are looking for fulfillment in what the world says. You know, what does Dr. Phil say? What does this talk show host say? And what they don't realize is that the treasure, first of all, it's within us. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. But the treasure is also found in God's Word. And we don't need to look beyond what God has given us to find that fulfillment. So these are going to be three parts, three simple steps for us to understand that if we, if we find them, if we follow them, we can have that joy. This is what Paul keeps speaking to us about. Uh, we don't have to go outside. You know, God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. So let's jump in. Starting with verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision. Who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in confidence in the flesh. So the first out of three is the warning against confidence in the flesh. What is the flesh? Greek word sarx, depending on how it's conjugated. Uh, but basically, we're looking at a panoply of things that affect the physical body still tethered to this earth. We're born again of the Spirit. We, ha we now have two natures. We started with a, an earthly nature, a nature of death. When we're born again, we're revived spiritually, but we're still tied to these bodies. And these bodies are not completely redeemed, and the reason why is because we still go to funerals. There's obvious evidence there. So when we look at this panoply of the flesh, what is that? It could be human characteristics. It could be personal achievements. It could be religious works. It could be anything that we do that's tethered to this earth. And some say, well, religion, doesn't that get us to God? No. Christ gets us to God. Christ gets us to heaven. Oftentimes, religion is man's continued fleshly self-efforts to attain heaven. But Christ says, no, you have to do it through a relationship with God. And if anyone's struggling with that, boy, I'd love to, by the end of the service, I'd love for you to come up and, and um, you know, make that determination make that step to get closer to god so we look at this he the first verse is he says rejoice in the lord it seems like it doesn't even go here unless you're spiritually minded then you know well it's 
it goes everywhere. You know, it's pandemic through the scriptures. Rejoice in the Lord, right? As opposed to our personal achievements, things that we can attain through the flesh. To truly know Christ is to rejoice. And I have to tell you, as a, a new believer, I still wasn't, you know, you're born again, and that's why it says born, like as a baby. The Apostle Paul says, eating milk, eating meat. He gives this, this parallel or this allusion to uh, childbirth and to a human being being born and actually starting to grow. So when you're newly born again, there's a lot of things we don't know. And it just takes time in the Word. It takes time in prayer. It takes time in growth and maturity. But you get to the point where you get it. The light bulb goes off. To truly know Christ is to rejoice. So he continues with this warning against the false teachers. Remember, we're getting close to the end of the letter to the Philippians. There's four chapters, but when he wrote it, he didn't delineate chapters. It was just one continuous thought. So we're getting close to the end, and he says a few things. He says, beware of dogs. That might have been the inspiration for people to put those signs on their stockade fences in the backyard if they got big dogs. I don't know. But that's not what he's talking about. <laughs> he's not speaking of literal dogs. He was speaking about false teachers. Now, back then and today, there was a garden variety of false teachers. You had your Arianists, you had your Gnostics, and here you had your Judaizers who were literally nipping at his heels, who were basically saying, well, you can't become a Christian unless you follow the law of Moses first. You can't become a Christian as a Gentile unless you become Jewish first. Paul was saying, Paul was Jewish, and he's saying, no, that's absolutely not true. So let's look at some of these descriptors. Dogs. Back then, dogs were not man's best friend like today. They were scavengers. They lived off the streets. If a bunch of them got together, they were prone to attack. So it was a, it was a fitting description. What these false teachers did was they tried to scavenge off of established churches or established teachings and steal converts, so to speak. Two, they were evil workers. Why? Because they downplayed the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Now today, you know, we, the Bible, Jesus said that ravenous wolves come to you in sheep's clothing. You can turn on the television, usually that's where you'll find a lot of them, and uh, you can see these TV preachers that downplay the gospel of Jesus Christ. They may look beautiful, they may sound polished, but they're evil workers. Not all of them, but the ones that pull away from the gospel and try to put their own spin on how to get saved and maintain that salvation, so to speak. Three, beware of the mutilation. So back then, again, for us, it's a little hard to understand, but we have our own false teachers today. And you can easily make the parallels. Back then, the Judaizers would force their male followers, if they weren't circumcised, now to get circumcised as an, as an adult to be able to become Christians. Uh, well, we know through anatomy and physiology that if you try to circumcise an adult male versus a, a baby, an infant, you can have problems, you can have infection, you can have fever, you can have extreme pain. It's the, the physiology t changes over the years. Hence, he says, beware of the mutilation. You guys are mutilating these guys. This is so not necessary. You know what's amazing? Christ offers freedom, and I've said this before. Sometimes people like to follow cults. They think the more they're abused, the more they're being talked down to, the more they're controlled, the more godly they can be. <laughs> so, right, you, a lot of you know what I'm talking about. You see it. And it's like, no, no, we, we want to give you freedom in Christ. Yeah, but what do I have to do? Relax with the what do I have to do part. Just love the Lord. Just get to know him. Just, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll follow my word. He gave very simple instructions, folks. Verse 3, he goes, Paul says, we are the circumcision, which is a very odd statement to make. For Christians, we are the circumcision. What he was speaking about was a spiritual sense. So circumcision was a physical Old Testament rite, which was part of the covenant. To be part of the circumcision now in a spiritual sense, it's a spiritual exercise. Check this out. All the way back in the law in Deuteronomy 10, 16, God said, it's through his prophets, he said to the people at the time, he said, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. Now, I took anatomy and physiology, I would love biology, and I can't find anywhere a, a foreskin on somebody's heart. He was speaking in a spiritual sense. He goes, you guys are fine with following the law and circumcising and cutting off the foreskin. He goes, but your hearts are in the wrong place. It's sad. You know, you're following, now you're, you're really doing a good job following the rites and rituals, but the whole meaning behind them is lost. It's lost. 
circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. So as Christians, it's not an external exercise anymore or a right. It's internal. It's our heart. It's what we do. It's a relationship with the Lord. Verse 3, he also says, we worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ. Again, we, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. God is always with us as believers. And I think Satan's biggest lie to a lot of Christians is to get them to think that they're alone. We're never alone when we become believers and sealed with the Holy Spirit. And I have to tell you, what's really sad is when I speak sometimes in, in, in instances with denominational people, or religious people, sometimes I find that the more I talk about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, it's body language. They get contorted a little bit. They're so into their religion and so into the works that the spiritual part freaks them out. Isn't it weird to deal with somebody who's in a religion, Christian religion, and they don't like to hear the word Jesus? It's just odd. But it's more about their church. It's more about their, their leader. It's more about the, the rules that's instituted than having a relationship with the Lord. He says, three, he says, we have no confidence in the flesh. Now, here's an interesting point, is that some can say, well, I want to be a Christian, and they, they go through whatever to think that they're going to become a Christian, or they get saved, and they start with confidence in the world. They're accomplished in whatever they do. Maybe they, I don't know, are very accomplished people. They come into the church, and what they do is they take that same mentality confidence in the world, confidence in the flesh, confidence in my abilities, and they bring it into their Christian walk. And they think that they're growing because they're able now to lead things or tell people what to do or they've gained some authority or some title. And that's not it. It's not it. I mean, this really goes back to the humility model. Verse 4. He says a few things here in verse 4 through 6. Paul says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh... And he's kind of thrown out a hypothetical there. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I have more. So, circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. It's his spiritual resume here, his religious resume. A Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law. I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Concerning righteousness, which, which was in the law, I was blameless. Now, he's not bragging. But he, what he's doing is he's speaking to the Judaizers. He's speaking to the Philippians who are maybe possibly getting captivated by the Judaizers. He goes, you want confidence? You want you know, accomplishments in the religious world? That was me. I was a Pharisee. They just cover a few of these. Pharisee. These guys were an elite religious group that strictly adhered to the law of Moses. And if you couldn't do that, they kicked you out of their group. They had the vestments. They had the robe. They had the out, outer accoutrements. Um, and, and these guys were, Jesus even said about them, he goes, don't do what they do, but do what they say. These guys know the law inside and out. That's true, but they're hypocrites. They're really not, it's really not in their heart. He says, righteousness in the law, I was blameless. In other words, I could keep the law better than most people in my, you know, in my profession or my, my cadre or whatever you want to call it. He said, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Some cringe when I say this, but if you've been in the Lord a while, you'll understand it. Paul was a religious terrorist. He was terrible. He sat there and he took the garments of the people when they stoned uh, Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He, he was more than happy to collect everybody's stuff so they could go out there and throw stones and kill this guy. He went uh, to Syria and he looked for Christians wherever he could find them. He would bind them and back, bring them back to the religious authorities to have them accused. He wanted to stomp out this new sect called Christianity. Right? This is what he did. You wonder why he was so on fire for the Lord. Because once he saw the light, I think he had regrets about his past life and what he did. But he wasn't going to let that stop him from moving forward. I'm going to get to that. You look at ISIS. You look at Boko Haram. They hate Christians. But you know what? Some of them have become Christians. They've actually secretly gone and realized, what am I doing? This, how am I pleasing God by doing this? I have blood on my hands. And they would go to the Christians secretly. There's a lot of reports about this. And they would leave that group and become Christians. Amazing stuff. Some of them were raised up like the Apostle Paul in a different area. Then they said, I have to go back. I have to preach this to the, to the guys that I left. 
Many lose their lives doing it, but they just have this inner drive now that they found the truth to tell everybody about it. It's not always received well. Paul was one of those people. I'm not saying that he actually personally killed anybody. I don't know that, but I know that he definitely was an accomplice, <laughs> to use New Jersey penal code. Uh, so, <laughs> verse 7. <laughs> but what, <laughs> what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. But indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. So what Paul is saying is, I'm on the other side. I see the light. It's all clear to me now. Again, some get saved and they still rely on their worldly accomplishments. Others get saved and they want to hold on to everything that they had. Bad relationships, you know, bad uh, idols, whatever it is, but they also want Jesus. It's almost a, a form of polytheism. I don't want to get rid of anything that I came to the cross with. I don't want to get rid of all my baggage. Let me get here. I'll give you a little bag at the cross, but the backpack I got to keep, and spiritually speaking. But they also want God and they want to get to heaven. Well, who, do, who wants to go to hell? Nobody does. But it, there's got to be a relationship there. You see what I'm saying? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He had everything. He wanted to add to his abundance. And Jesus told him basically that your abundance is hindering your spirituality. It's even hindering his salvation. The rich young ruler wanted to do addition, but Jesus often wants to do subtraction. There's things in our heart, there's junk. It's like when your computer develops cookies and all this kind of stuff and everything starts to slow down. You've got to clean it out. You've got to get that stuff out of there. When we come to the cross, the Lord wants to do a little subtraction, but I've got to be honest with you, speaking for myself too, we want, we want addition. And in Western Christianity, it, that's preached, addition, stuff. And I'll get to that. I mean, honestly, when you look at the scales and you look at everything that Christ offers, can anything really compare to it? Really, nothing can compare to it. You know? Are there things that God wants us this morning to let go, but we're still holding on to? Is there something he wants to cut that might be painful, but it's a tumor, and he doesn't want it to spread in our spiritual hearts? Questions we need to ask ourselves. Here's a guy who, you know why I'm listening to him? You know why I'm so intent on every word that Paul says? is because he talks about having joy and he lost everything. What do you think they let him take to prison with him? Remember, for those of you that are new to the, to the letter, he's in a Roman prison. <laughs> oh yeah, let me take my baggage here. Let me, let me set it up over here and put the furniture. No, none of that stuff. He was chained to a Roman guard. He lost everything and he still had joy. That's, what I, that's why my ears perk up when he speaks. Because he really knew how to have joy, um, irrespective of his circumstances. He says he counted all things as rubbish. Rubbish is a nice word, okay? <laughs> In the Greek, it means dung, excrement, street scraps that the dogs ate. So he's saying, when I compare what Christ has for me to everything else in the world, to me it's dung. Now, the prosperity gospel teaches the more dung you have, the better. I don't know. I don't know. And they pack churches. I'm doing a little informal survey of churches. I know a lot of pastors. I know a lot of movements. In Jersey, there's a lot of things going on. And I'm finding that the, the churches that teach the Bible are not packing the house. They're not packing the house. However, these other places where they tell you everything you want to hear, they're packing the house. There's concerts. It seems lively. Apostle Paul said to the church, I'm sorry, Jesus spoke in Revelation, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. And sometimes Christians do that. They judge by appearances. Wow, this place is alive. And the pastor gets up, and what does he say? Nothing. Nothing about the Word of God. It's all about what, how you can manipulate God to get a whole bunch of stuff. He's a celestial Santa Claus. They pack the house. What does that say about Western Christianity? It says that we're in trouble. Not everybody wants to preach this, but those that come up to this pulpit will be faithful to do that. Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, that one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Are we listening to Jesus or are we listening to everybody else? Only one or two choices in life. Verse 9, he says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. How are we righteous? Two types of righteousness. It's funny, people say, well, you Christians, you Bible-believing Christians, it's one or two options. It's either this or this. Absolutely, because that's what the Bible says. It's either the world, the flesh, and the devil, or it's Christ's way. It's Christ's way. So, number one, God's righteousness. Everything else is self-righteousness. You can have subsets of religious righteousness, um, righteousness in the law. These are things Paul said, that was me before I became a Christian. God's righteousness saves. Self-righteousness deceives the person into thinking they can be saved through what they do physically. God's righteousness only comes through faith and trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. His sacrifice for our sins on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I love this scripture. I'm going to slow it down and then I'm going to just read it again. It says, For He, meaning the Father, made Him the Son, who knew no sin... Christ was perfect in eternity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? Who knew no sin, never sinned, never had physical experiential familiarization with, familiarization with sin, to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's a little bit of a mind-bender until you take it apart, so let me read it again. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You know what I call that? Legalized identity theft. <laughs> so identity theft is in the news a lot. Some of you might have experienced it. And they get your birth, date of birth and your credit card information and they pretend they're you and they go to the store. Some people are actually so good that they will put on um, wigs and stuff to they get a picture of you, make them look like you. No, I didn't buy that. <laughs> yeah, but according to the camera, it looks like you. Let's talk about spiritual legalized identity theft. So this is in, in, insane in a good way. So on the cross in the first century, Jesus Christ, I'll speak for myself, he takes my sins upon him. I wasn't even born yet. But he died for my sins. Remember, God is outside of time, freaks us out. The whole time thing wigs us out because we were taught linear time in school. But God is outside linear time. He created time. He can do whatever he wants. So on the cross, Jesus Christ, when he died for my sins, so on the cross, in a sense, he looked like me in that he didn't commit those sins. I did, or I will, and I have, and I will again. So he, so he dies for my sin. He looks like me, in a sense. When I come to the cross, I'm a heathen for 20-something years. I come to the cross, and I trust in Christ as my Lord and Savior. God doesn't see me as a heathen anymore. He doesn't see me as this you know, abject sinner. He sees me as Jesus. Because now when I trusted in him, I took his identity. So it's so cool. This is a great scripture. Some scriptures, one verse, they're just so powerful. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Yes, that's how I'm righteous. I'm not righteous through my own doings. All right? Verse 10. He says, that I may know him, Jesus, I may know him experientially, relationship-wise, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Or if by any means, if by any means, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So this is two out of three. The second point here. The exhortation to know Christ. Now this one I'm going to say is no versus no. K-N-O-W versus K-N-O-W. In the Greek, there's actually different words for no. In the English, there's one word. So we have to look at it contextually. So you could have, I don't know, your favorite ball player, your favorite, whatever, famous person or whatever. And, you know, I don't know, a lot of teenagers do this. They put the pictures up in their room. They know their stats. They know what they look like. And I know that person. Then they go out in public and they see that person. And they go up to hug them or, or handshake and the person backs off and asks for their security guard. You think you know that person, but that person doesn't know you. You see what I'm saying? A lot of people know of Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. There's a huge difference. Like that ball player. They don't know you. No offense. They don't know you. When you're coming up, and you're, you, they don't know what you're going to do. So do we know Christ like we know a ball player, or do we actually know him experientially? That's the question. No versus no. 
And he says this, the righteousness through faith in Christ that I may know him. Of course, Paul knew him, but he wanted to know him even more. Do we ever say, well, I've been a Christian for 10 years, 20 years. I'm good. I know Jesus. We're good. Do you do that with a personal friendship or marriage? You always have to be putting into a relationship. There's always that back and forth. Well, why would we limit God? Why would we limit ourselves? Paul says, I want to know him even more. And the power of his resurrection. You know, we can live, yes, he rose from the dead, and yes, we're saved because of that. But we can also live the resurrected life today, right now. And again, I've, I said this last Sunday, sometimes people, they come to get saved, and that's the finish line. No, 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 no. You're reading it wrong. That's the starting line. The resurrected life, until the day he takes us home, we breathe our last breath. That's the resurrected life. We can have that power. There's so many lies out there that the sa- Satan puts out there. Some of them are just in our conscious. We think them. We feel them. I don't feel good today. I'm feeling really, you know, the weather's changing. I'm feeling kind of depressed. And we allow our feelings and circumstances to change what we know about the Scripture. Well, I'm here to tell you, no. You can live the resurrected life. You're being held in bondage if, it, if you believe anything else. Free yourself from that. This is the truth. It's an amazing thing. I tell you, when we, when we do ministry, you pray for people, you see them get better, you um, counsel people, you do whatever, and you know it's not you. It's the Holy Spirit working through the ministry. That's so powerful. Lives change. It's incredible. Incredible stuff. He speaks about the fellowship, <laughs> to also be part of the fellowship of his sufferings. Hey, wait a minute. That TV preacher didn't say anything about suffering. <laughs> he didn't say anything about struggle. He didn't say anything about trials. Because he's only given you half the message. Because he wants numbers. Suffering, struggle, trial is part of the Christian walk. Oh, we, do we have so much hubris to think that Jesus went through all this and we can just, he did it so that we could be his spoiled children and have an easy time of our whole life? Not true. A lot of times it's the suffering and the trials that build our character. You show me a person who's been through trials and sufferings, I'll show you somebody who's honed who's, if they haven't become completely bitter, who's an amazing, strong person because of those, those sufferings and those trials. And he says, to be conformed to his death and attaining the resurrection of the dead. See, for the Christian, life and death come, go together. You see what I'm saying? It's that Paul always knew at some point that his life was probably going to be taken from him for doing what he was doing starting churches, sharing the gospel, things like that. Christians in Syria and Iraq and portions of Africa and Indonesia and such, they know the same thing. They know if they're actually going to go out and do the will of God as ambassadors from his kingdom, that the people from this kingdom are not always appreciative of it. And you'll find that as a Christian. Maybe we don't get the severe persecution in in Western culture, but maybe we lose friends, maybe we lose opportunities, who knows? But Paul was ready for both. Too many Christians today live like they're going to be here forever, and we're not. We're just passing through. I want to go back to something, because I think this is really the crux. The second out of three is, do we really know Christ? If I ask the average person in, on the street or in, in a church or, um, that, that uh, says that they're a Christian, the answer might be, well, I grew up in the church. You know, I'm in a Christian home. That's not the answer. You know, I, I have Christian friends. I go to a Christian college. No. I have a Christian spouse. I have Christian kids. Pastor Joe, you're going to love this one. I go to a Calvary Chapel. Oh, that's big. No, it's not. Do we know Christ? It's not the external. It's, it's the internal. It's our heart. Do we have a relationship with the Lord? You know, Matthew seven twenty one through 23, Jesus said that we could do many religious things and still not get into heaven because Jesus says, I don't know you. There's like that illustration I gave a few moments ago. I don't know you. Now, some have been told, or maybe some don't do this or, or don't pursue it, is because they've been told, well, you're in a religion. You're in, you're in one of the better denominations. That's good enough. It's less invasive than a relationship with God. And I've used this before. Imagine going to someone's house that you don't know and knocking on the door and as soon as they open the door you just barge in sit on their couch go in their refrigerator like they don't know you and they call the police on you you know when we go to heaven sure everybody wants to go to heaven but do you know the one who owns the place who built the place who maintains the place 
<laughs> we're a stranger or we know him. And the good news is that you can know him. For those that are saying, wow, this is, uh, I've never heard this before. But if you don't know him, you can know him. You can. Verse 12. He says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I love his physical analogies. Jesus did the same thing. He would often take his disciples and he'd show them something. And he'd make a spiritual parallel to the kingdom of heaven. I love, I, I can't, could you imagine being there and walking with him when he did that stuff? That must have been like, everybody must have been like so captivated. Because we're, 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 we're on the earth. This is what we know. No, we haven't been up there. We don't know what it's like up there. Well, Jesus came to teach us. He came to show us using simple illustrations. He says, pressing on towards the goal. And he said, not that I've been perfected. I'm not perfect. And, and that's so important for any leader in the Christian sense so people understand. You know, Paul, Paul knew he was a sinner. And some maybe elevated him. Oh, look at how many churches Paul planted. Look how many letters he wrote. You can get caught up in that today. Paul was saying, listen, I'm not perfect. I'm continuing to strive for Christ. And we read his letters and say, wow, he must be really close at that point. But he knew. He knew, and he was striving also for, his, for the Lord's plan for his life. So he uses this analogy of the, the Greco-Roman races, and they, they had these races. You know, our, our Olympics can be traced back to that time period era. And he said that he doesn't, he's not looking what's behind him. What's behind us? I had 20-something 20, years of living against God. So to me, it, I look back and I'm like, who was that person? You know what I'm saying? I, there's, nothing, there's nothing there for me. There's nothing there for me to go back to. Sometimes Christians live in a world of regrets and hurts and things of that nature. You know what? Give the Lord a chance to heal you of that. Let him, listen, he's forgiven us. Right? Sometimes we hold on to things that he's not holding on to. Why are we doing that? We just torture ourselves. It's, it's not necessary. So like the Greek races, or you look at races today, and they're running, they're running, and they're not looking back. I've never seen a race where somebody's looking back and then they won. Never seen it. But in those races, what, what he was familiar with was them, them moving forward, right? Reaching forward, striving as they're running. You ever watch races and, and you see that there's that tape and they, they look so awkward, some of these runners. You know, not only they're running with their legs, but their hands are out. And their, their chests are out. And they want to cross that tape before the next person. They're all contorted to get across that finish line. Paul makes a spiritual analogy with that. It's pretty impressive. Are we as serious about our faith and our calling as he was? As he was. What are we striving for? Does it have any eternal value? I love this. He says that I may lay hold of that which Jesus Christ laid hold of me. To me, I look at that in, in wrestling. When you've got those holds and you want to hold on to your opponent. And, and to me, that just went into my mind. He's talking about Greek races. Awesome. I moved on now to the wrestling analogy. Check this out. Jacob in Genesis. Um, different scriptures. It's, it's a little nebulous. He wrestled with somebody in a human form. Now we know that Jesus Christ at times before the first century did actually come down and he took the form um, of, of a person as in, in the messenger of the Lord and such. We know that angels would come and visit people and have discussions. So, you know, I, I can't really say definitively what he, who he actually wrestled with, but he wrestled with a representation of God. And you know, what did Jacob say before the wrestling match was over? He held on so tightly and Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. You know, God showed him his power. He touched his hip and hit it threw out his joint, and he limped for the rest of his life. God showed him his power. But Jacob would not let go of, of that representation of God. I will not let you go until you bless me. And here I look at the same thing. Paul's like, he's like, I, I, I want Christ, you know, I, and I don't want to let him go. Great stuff. 
great image in people's minds. He speaks about the goal for the prize of the upward call. You know, we look at the crown of life, we look at rewards, we look at Corinthians, we look at the different scriptures that speaks about these amazing things. That as Christians, we, we go through this call in life and maybe we'll get a, a reward or something and in Revelation it shows that the elders take it and lay it back at the Lord's feet because he's the, really the author of that. But it's cool, we get to work for him while we're here. We get to do things, we get to bear fruit. But what precipitates that? what we do from the time we get saved to the time we pass away. What are we doing? You know, are we fulfilling God's ministry for our life here? I, I say this, that as, as believers, and if you're a new believer, don't sweat it. Take your time, enjoy this time getting to know your God. That's just between, and you know what? Really, the more you grow, he'll show you things. It's a really, really neat relationship. If we've been a Christian for a while, though, we're doing one of two things. We're either pursuing the call, like Paul says. We're pursuing the call. You know, every few years, I look at my life and say, what am I doing? What am I doing? Okay, I'm pastoring. What am I teaching? Lord, what do I teach next? I don't want to be stale. I want to continue to pursue that call. That's my heart. It's my heart. Or we're aimlessly meandering Christians. We're in love with the world. We're so distracted. Initially, it was a honeymoon phase with the Lord, and somewhere along the line, we left our first love. Jesus speaks about that. Where are we? What are we doing? Oh, I just have a title. I go to church. Are we pursuing his call for our lives? If every Christian pursued their, their call that God had given them in their lives, could you imagine how our society might be different? I'm, I'm reading a report about this, this whole thing in Charlotte with the riots, and the police are on one side, and the riots are on the other and that these Christians had come in to the middle and try to make peace. That's, that to me, I, I got it choked up when I read that. You can get hurt doing that from either side. But they did it because that what they felt was that was their role. They were trying to mediate for the situation to bring peace. That's what we're supposed to do as Christians. You know? And sometimes it's not as dramatic as that as just sitting with somebody in the doctor's office who's very nervous because they had a test and they got to go back and you don't know what they're dealing with and God leads you to talk to them. And you're making peace by, by telling them about Christ, about salvation. Different ways that we can, you know, a lot of ministries are very humble and simple ministries. They're not in lights and they're not in big stadiums. The majority of, of Christianity these relationships are simple. They're small. They're person to person. That's what we do. Verse 15. He continues. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. Oh, I just read that. It was so good. Let me read it again. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. Have this mindset. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. He'll show you the truth. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. He says those that are mature will understand this. Paul, listen, he didn't have time to mince words. He didn't have time to worry about if he was politically correct or offending any of the Christians in Philippians. He just let it fly. And he says, you know what? If you're mature, you'll understand what I'm saying. If you're not, God will show you. If you're open to it, are we open to it? Life's goals. Number one, putting little confidence in our flesh, knowing Christ, and striving towards the upward call that God has for us. And what he's saying too is, towards the end, he goes, you know what, Christians need to be of the same mind on this. On the important things, as Christians, we need to be in agreement. We're not going to agree on everything, but the important things, we really need to be in agreement on. There's enough division in society and unfortunately, sometimes in Christianity we see division too, but we're supposed to be setting the standard. What's attractive to society about us if we're all fighting with each other? You know, verse 17. He says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who, walk, who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. So the three out of the three for this morning is the warning against living for the flesh, which is different than having confidence in the flesh. One is a mindset, one is a behavior set, although they really come from the same place. 
And the behavior is something where the mind receives it, understands it, and then says, okay, let's live like this. It's a lifestyle. Be careful. And it's amazing because knowing Christ is sandwiched in between these two, point one and point three. Knowing Christ is point two. So what does he say? You, you have a pattern. Paul was a pattern. That word pattern in the Greek to be a die or a stamp. They didn't have automation and plastic and robotics that we have today. They would make dies, they would make stamps, and this is how they would cast things. And it would be the same thing. If you were making pottery or clay, you, you, know, you would do that, and it would look the same every time you hit that stamp. So he's saying we have to be, we have to be 1 Corinthians 11.1 says, uh, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul wasn't saying, look at me, I'm perfect. He's saying there is a pattern that we really should be following. Right? There's one pattern that's good and one pattern that's bad. Again, you Christians, it's either this or this. Exactly. That's what the Bible says. Right? Verse 18, he warns again against the enemies of the cross of Christ. Does he do it angrily? Does he do it uh, vengefully? No, he doesn't. He does it with tears. He does it with sorrow. This is probably up, up on the list of things that pastors don't want to do. Talk to somebody and say, and you know it's not going to be received well. Well, you really shouldn't do that. This really isn't a good idea. Uh, don't kill the messenger. You know what I'm saying? But it, it sometimes can come off authoritative. It could come off controlling. But you're just looking out for the person. That's what Paul was doing. I had a situation in, a while back with a couple, and they had this great plan that they were going to do. It include, include move, that's nobody here, include moving and a whole bunch of other stuff. And uh, in my spirit, I knew it wasn't a good idea. It was something very strong that I felt, and I sat them down, and I was gentle, and I said it, and they did it anyway. A few years later, the husband comes back, and everything was a mess. And he goes, why weren't you more forceful with me? <laughs> you can't win doing this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you just can't win. <laughs> because then I'll come back as an, I'll come off as an ogre. But you should have been more forceful. I'm like, what do you want me to do? Shackle you to the church basement? I, I'm not going to control your life. But this is what we have to do in this position. The Lord shows you something. You have to share it if they're willing to listen to it. And they either take the advice or they don't take the advice. Right? And this is what Paul was doing. He wasn't being over authoritative or anything like that verse 19 he gives us a description of these false teachers number one whose end is destruction god will eventually judge the tares that are mixed in with the wheat it's a great parable the parable of the wheat and the tares right there are tares in the church unfortunately i speak about the aggregate church every church has a, an issue where somebody passes in or passing out they have a they have an agenda they're looking to spread some weird doctrine um God will eventually deal with it. Two, whose God is their belly. You might say, what does that have to do with anything? They're beholden to fleshly appetites. So let me speak for myself. I love to eat. I can't wait to get, go home and eat again. It's been a while since I had breakfast. And you know what? One of the most powerful bodily urges that you'll ever experience is your stomach rumbling. It's embarrassing socially. Sometimes it makes noise. Sometimes it makes you want to burp. Some, it's, sometimes it's, it feels like there's a knife in your stomach. It's so painful. I've got to eat. And your body is telling you to, to run somewhere and put something in your mouth. So when he says their God is their belly, what he's not saying is that they have an eating problem. What he's saying is that their flesh is always prioritized over their spirit. They're always giving... You know, The weird thing about religion is... Some who aren't discerning will look at that, and, and some religious people are very genuine, so I'm not knocking all religious rites. And, I mean, you know, we do baptism, we do things that the Lord has called us to do. But a lot of times it's, it's earth-tethered. They actually go through these machinations, and there's really no regard for God or what He wants. Jesus will tell you right in the Scripture what God wants. All you have to do is find it. Three, whose glory is in their shame. They glory in things that they should be ashamed of. And I think what, what I get sometimes um, bothered by is Christians who follow trends. Like they're quick to follow a trend. And even if it's a church that's putting out this trend, oh, they're jumping on it. They haven't prayed about it. They haven't checked it with Scripture. They haven't talked to somebody. They're just jumping on the bandwagon. You know, some, you'll find a lot in this church where slow 
to jump onto something. People do that with celebrities and ball players. And I have to say, the one that really stands out in my mind is Tim Tebow. He stood the test of time. I have no problem coming up here and saying, that guy, I think he's a good example. But a lot of Christians have jumped on the bandwagon and it's fallen apart within a few, few months. And they're like, ooh, let's forget about that one and move on. So whose glory is in their shame? Who's set their mind on earthly things? Again, we're not going to be here forever. When the rapture comes and the Lord calls me home, you can look up my address, you can have my house. You can go into it, you could eat what's in my refrigerator. I mean, if, you, if you're not sold on the Lord and you're still here, you can have it. When the rapture comes, I love my home. I love, I have a, a wood-burning stove, and boy, in the wintertime, I love to stoke that thing up and put my feet up and it warms my feet. I love my house. I could go in right now after service with my eyes closed and go in every room and know where everything is and all the junk that I packed in this closet or that closet. I've known that house for seven, it's not huge, but it's my home. It's home to me, 17 years. When the Lord calls me home home, I'm going. No argument, no complaining, but I wanted to do this, but I wanted to see that. Nope, I'm gone. So if you don't know the Lord, and you can read my Bibles, you can use my wood-burning stove, there's wood in the back. Just make sure I'm gone before you walk in for obvious reasons, okay? So there you go. We're just passing through. Verse 20. It says for... <laughs> this afternoon I have like 10 people like knocking on the door. <laughs> Verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Wow. Perspective check. Let me ask you a question. And don't, don't feel ashamed to say it, but does, does, to some, does heaven sound boring? Some people have said that to me. I've witnessed. Oh, heaven sounds really boring. Like we're a bunch of schmooze just floating around on the clouds. That's, that's the Renaissance area. You know, how we can get brainwashed by stuff. We look at the pictures and everybody's on a cloud. They're just kind of chilling out and just bored as heck. Oh, what's God going to do today? That's not heaven. If, if that's what you think heaven is, I would ask you to get this book. Um, it's called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. And the book is like 300 pages. Some of you have read it. He goes through the scripture and he talks about how amazing heaven's going to be. It isn't like the Renaissance painting, so I just want to get that out of your mind. He will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. I can tell you something. The closer I get to 50, the more I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, I had a foot surgery six months ago, and the doctor said, it's going to take a full year to, to heal. He broke the biggest bone in my foot, reset it, put some screws in it. Pretty neat. I got the pictures. But... Uh, <laughs> So he goes, well, you, you can start running. So I started running. And, <laughs> yeah, I mapped it out with my car, the, the mileage, and, and I, I, I get and I start and, I, and I'm going. And I can hear the Rocky music in my head, but I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's like inspirational, but I'm going and I'm running and, and I'm huffing and puffing and my body's like, oh, we didn't get the memo. What are you doing? So uh, I'm just doing it incrementally, little by little. Every few days I'm running a little bit more. But I can tell you that, that yeah, I'm looking forward to the new body as well. <laughs> so I tell my wife, when I start running, you need to be in the house. Because if something happens, I'm, I'm on the floor, I'm going to call on the cell phone and you can come pick me up. I get home, my gastrocnemius muscles, my calves are like engorged. I'm, like, I'm walking like Frankenstein because my calves are so pumped. But I know, in my mind, I'm 25, but that's not reality. So for you younger people, you'll get there if the Lord tarries. You'll, you'll understand what we're talking about. But the truth is, when we get to heaven, yeah, it's going to be a great thing. God is going to uh, change our bodies. Um, and why? Because, first of all, this body dies. We know that. We go to funerals. But also, he's going to change it and not make it like the same body. It just stays. He's going to make it a different substance. It's not going to be on the atomic level, carbon-based, you know, carbon, hydrogen, all that kind of stuff. It's going to be of a glorious substance where it doesn't die. Um, it has to be able to go through heaven. It has to be able to 
traverse different um, you know, geographical locations. I think it's going to be amazing. The city of Jerusalem is going to be like 1,200 miles by 1,200 by 1,200 high, this huge cube. Like, I don't think there's going to be stairs and we're going to be out of breath. Um, when you really look at what heaven and the, the new earth and everything is going to be like, it's actually, when you take all the scriptures together, I'm excited for it. I can't wait to see what it looks like. It's going to be a great thing. But we are ambassadors, Paul says, because we're born again. All of a sudden, we've gotten his citizenship. We're citizens of heaven. We're from God's kingdom, letting the inhabitants of the earth know that there's something better, that there's a more glorious kingdom. We're ambassadors. So we're supposed to be here temporarily. Some live like they've defected to the inferior kingdom. Some in the church live like, oh, I'm not going back to heaven. Why? The more you understand about God and who he is and what he's provided, why would we want anything else? This world only brings death and sorrow. There's a lot of things that aren't in heaven. I hate to disappoint you, but one of them is funerals. Never have to go to a funeral again. Nobody dies. You know? So let me just end it with less flesh, more Jesus. It's pretty straightforward. He says, number one, to have less confidence in our own flesh while we're here. Have less, it's a hard thing. It's a fight. You know, I've been a Christian for 20-something years, 25 years. It's still a fight. So sometimes my flesh wants to go out there, and I want to do it in my own strength. And God's like, don't leave me behind. You know, I'm just being honest with you. Paul was honest. Why shouldn't I be honest? We're not perfect. And we never preach perfection in this church because it's not reality. To live less for our flesh, to get to know the Lord more, and to be busy about striving for the upward call in Christ Jesus. That's exciting. It's an exciting thing. And folks, right there is a really great recipe for contentment and joy. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.